Okay, hello everyone and welcome to ACTUS Radio, the nation's only radio program dedicated to the clinical documentation improvement profession. ACTUS Radio is a bi-weekly program dedicated to bringing you closer to the difference makers in CDI and sharing the latest news and information relevant to the CDI profession and to ACTUS. Today, Wednesday, February 8th, marks our 61st program. Association of Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists, and I'm your host for today's program, Acute Respiratory Failure, Frequently Asked Questions. I'm joined today by my co-host at the left. She's suffering through a little bit of a cold and sickness today, but she's game enough to join us. It's familiar face, Sharm Brody. I won't go through all of her background, but you know her. She's one of our boot camp instructors and a subject matter for, ex, uh, for ACTUS, and I'm pleased to have her on the show. So welcome, Sharm. Hi, Brian. Thank you very much. All right. You sound pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Better than yesterday. Okay. Uh, now I'd like to uh, kick things off by introducing our special guest on today's program. You can see him there at right. He is Richard Pinson. Just by background, Richard is uh, principal of Pinson and Tang Educators and Consultants based in Houston, Texas. Uh, after graduating from Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, uh, he completed his residency and fellowship at Vanderbilt and the University of Pennsylvania. He's a fellow of the American College of Physicians, board certified in both internal medicine and emergency medicine, and he's also in a HEMA uh, certified coding specialist. Um, you probably also know him. He's a familiar name with Actus. He's a regular speaker with us, uh, but in, in a larger sense, he's co-author of the CDI Pocket Guide, our popular book published by Actus, uh, and uh, along with his colleague Cynthia Tang. The two of them um, co-created the new CDI Pocket Digital Editions as well. So I'm pleased to have him on the show to talk about a topic that's certainly covered a lot in the pocket guide. So welcome to the program, Richard. Hi, Sharm. Hi, Brian. It's uh, nice to be with you all again. Always a pleasure to appear on Actus Radio. <laughs> all right. <laughs> we had some minor technical difficulties, but we have Richard on now, so we're, we are good to go. So as I always do, I'm going to start with a, a poll question related to today's topic. Um, we're going to ask you guys to weigh in on it and then we will come back to these results after our interview with Richard, but uh, the question reads, what is the biggest problem you have with the proper diagnosis and reporting of acute respiratory failure? Is it under-documentation by clinicians? Uh, perhaps it's over-diagnosis or clinical validation? Um, would you cons consider coding errors to be your biggest problem? Perhaps it's auditor denials, removal, downgrade, etc. Uh, or maybe you don't have any issues with this diagnosis. Again, uh, what's the biggest problem you have with the proper diagnosis and reporting of acute respiratory failure under documentation, maybe over diagnosis, or getting that diagnosis clinically validated? You know, maybe the diagnosis is there but not the support. Uh, is it coding errors, auditor denials, or maybe you're one of the lucky ones that doesn't have any issues with it at all? So we'll uh, we got about 75% of our audience voted, so we will go ahead and close that out, and we will come back to the uh, results in just a bit. 
All right, so as I mentioned, our guest today is Dr. Richard Pinson. Again, thanks for being a part of the program uh, and being back on Actus Radio once again. You know, Richard, I thought we could jump right in um, with some questions. So again, today's program came about because, as I always do at the end of every show, I ask people to send me their ideas for shows, and sometimes, you know, I just get straight questions, and I got, I have received a couple over the last several months, you know, um, regarding acute respiratory failure, so I figured we would do an FAQ show. Um, you know, maybe we could start, Richard, with one that I received that said, you know, uh, Brian, could you please talk about criteria and resources to support post-op pulmonary insufficiency. So maybe you could start with that for us, uh, Richard, sort of what you use there, and, and let me know if you want me to bring up any of the, the slides you sent me as well. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, could you, um, do you have any particular slides there on that issue, Brian? I don't. I don't believe we have any there, so uh, we might not we have it for that. But maybe you, maybe you yeah. could just start with, uh, yeah. I will. Yeah, and uh, just first of all, I think uh, I'll just comment that in the CDI Pocket Guide, both the both the print and the new digital editions, we have uh, kind of two two pages of some very good detail on all of those things, all these post procedural. Um, pulmonary insufficiencies and respiratory failures. Um, uh, it goes into quite a bit of detail and gives some references. So I think that's a real valuable source, uh, assuming that you have those things, uh, and would, would be worth looking at. Uh, now, as far as, uh, you know, all the clinical aspects, the criterion resources, this has always been a problematic uh, a diagnosis for me, pulmonary insufficiency. There's no particular specific or authoritative diagnose, uh, standard for diagnosing pulmonary insufficiency. So I have no idea, really, and probably many clinicians may not know exactly what they mean by that term, but are accustomed to using it for some reason. Uh, but whatever they mean by it, often I think uh, something minor, they think it's just a very minor term that the patients have a little difficulty. It's a little bit of lung difficulty. So it's just insufficiency. Uh, but our coding classification is going to put that as respiratory failure, post-op respiratory failure code, as a serious life-threatening complication. So it's really a bad term to be using at all. Uh, uh, but I ought to say it's only if it's acute post-op. So, um, if they mean respiratory failure, if they have criteria for respiratory failure, they need to say respiratory failure, acute or not. But uh, to use pulmonary insufficiency is just a vague, nonspecific idea. Respiratory failure is very well defined. And so that's really sort of the standard that ought to be applied. And one of the difficulties and where I see this most often is in the ICU or intensivists who want to um, put some diagnosis for routine vent management following surgery so that they can justify critical care codes, or at least they think they need to. And uh, frankly, I don't think they do. They used to, but it's, I don't think it's required anymore. 
but um, that's where I see it occurring probably as a result of an acquired habit from old practices. And the problem is they're just trying to have something that's not serious or very significant in these routine situations. And frankly, if you're going to sign one of the codes for acute pulmonary insufficiency post-op and they don't have a pulmonary problem, nothing unusual, they're just on the vent for support routinely following surgery, that's not a clinically valid diagnosis. Uh, that really shouldn't be assigned on a claim. Uh, and, and I know this uh, new business about clinical validity, but uh, uh, that doesn't change the other law that applies here besides our laws that govern our coding, the uh, False Claims Act, which, you know, Medicare uses, CMS uses to say, wait a minute, you know, we're going to review your charts for clinical validity because you can't submit a claim with code on it so, for things that can't be substantiated by clinical criteria. So we still have that obligation when we're filing the claim. Right. I think so that, I hope that deals with with it comprehensively. Yeah, just to follow up briefly, you know, if you if you are seeing that routine weaning, et cetera, that might not support, uh, you know, a, a respiratory failure code, do you have any suggestions on how to, you know, talk to a, a surgeon or physician um, about that scenario so that they 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 understand it? I know that's that that's a routine term for maybe a clinician to use, but um, you know, just just some advice for the because we I, I I do get this question all the time and, and I'm sort of wondering how to head it off at the pass. You know what I mean, rather than deal with it on a case by case basis. Well, uh, here's the deal. Uh, I think that if you inform your surgeons that this is happening to, that 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 puts a big black mark on their quality of care and performance. When those doctors just write pulmonary insufficiency and there's no real respiratory failure involved, no real pulmonary problem, uh, they're going to want that practice changed. Uh, I would certainly give my uh, intensivist, if they're doing that, a chance to change that practice before I get the surgeons all, you know, lathered up uh, about what's happening to them because the intensivists are doing something they really you know, establishing a diagnosis. But uh, my advice is, if it's not clinically valid, don't code it. At least, it better not be on the claim. That code better not be on the claim. Great. So you have to have a process. You need a process. You still need clinical validity, and it's absolute requirement uh, by Medicare. And uh, it's a big rack issue, uh, rack audit issue. And you need a process somehow to decide if we really don't see the uh, clinical criteria, we're not going to put the code on the claim. All right. Sharon, why don't you take the next one we've had submitted? I will. I was listening intently to that answer, and I, I greatly appreciated that. So if I'm gathering it correctly, educate, and then query if necessary. So, well, but, Go ahead, I'm sorry. Not gonna, may, not, may not solve your problem because if the doctor says, well, they do have pulmonary insufficiency, you still can't code it for Medicare purposes because it's still not okay. If they give you evidence, other evidence and reasons why it definitely is, you know, equivalent to acute respiratory failure, which is what it is, acute, acute respiratory failure, same thing, you know, it's treated the same in terms of quality. Yep. Uh, you've still got to have the criteria. 
uh, okay. according to Medicare, and you still don't have it. So you have to teach. You have to be taught. Good. You have to understand. Somebody's got to go to. Somebody has to do it. Well, great answer. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Pinson. All right, so our next question is from an Actus Radio listener who asked for suggestions on hypoxia versus acute hypoxic respiratory failure. Uh, they wrote, I see frequent acute hypoxic respiratory failure with O2 sets down, but patient remains asymptomatic, and the MD is writing acute hypoxic respiratory failure. We end up putting a clarification to the doctor for clinical validation. In the past, our consulting company instructed us anything over the normal is acute respiratory failure, but this is a RAC diagnosis, so we are trying not to lose this diagnosis on an audit um, if it came up. So they were looking to see if there was anything that you could help clarify, um, and they also stated that it plays a major role in COPD readmits and the hospital gets penalized. Can you discuss this? So it looks to me like they want to know the difference between acute hypoxic respiratory failure, hypoxia, and if COPD plays a role in any of it? Uh, yes, and I think there's a very straightforward answer here uh, um, that hypoxia is a misnomer for what we're talking about. Hypoxia is sort of a general term referring to uh, general tissue oxygenation. We can't measure that. We don't know whether a patient has tissue hypoxia. Hypoxemia means low oxygen in the blood. That's what we measure. And that's what type of respiratory failure it is. So if I say hypoxic, I'm using the wrong term. It is hypoxemia that we're talking about. And now you have a very simple clarification because hypoxemia means oxygen below normal oxygen level below normal. And below normal is a PO2 on the blood gas less than 80, an oxygen saturation, which the pulse oximeter measures, less than 95%. Or hopefully everyone's learning about the, the PO2 to FiO2 ratio, which is the uh, PO2 divided by the fraction of oxygen the patient's breathing. That's usually the percent. And if that's less than 400, it's below normal. And that's when the patient's on oxygen already because the PO2 uh, on less than 80 is a room air um, criteria. Uh, if you're already on oxygen, then you calculate the PF ratio. If it's less, that's less than 400, you have hypoxemia. You don't have respiratory failure, um, and specifically hypoxemic respiratory failure, until the PO2 is less than 60. That's the difference. You're looking for a PO2 less than 60 on room air. And that's equivalent to a pulse ox reading less than 91% on room air. Or the PF ratio less than 300, which is the same as a PO2 less than 60 when you're breathing oxygen. So the PF ratio tells you, do I have still have acute respiratory failure even though I'm on oxygen? and breathing normally. So those are the uh, criteria for uh, the distinctions, and those are the authoritative criteria for uh, hypoxemic respiratory failure. And uh, I think the PO2 less than 60 
while codeine clinic's not authoritative, it's in lots of medical literature. And um, even coding clinic mentions that as one of the uh, indicators that coders can be aware of to look for and help them query about hypoxemic respiratory failure. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. I hope that Thanks, was clear enough. Yeah, you know, we we are getting a fair bit of questions through the uh, question uh, feature here on the on the Access Radio site. So. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to maybe ask you a couple of these, Richard. They're a little off script, but um, they're certainly related to the topic, and some of them are asking for additional clarification. So, um, you know, one person wrote, I need to ask for clarification regarding the pulmonary insufficiency discussion. So she wrote, my understanding is that the documentation of acute respiratory failure in the post-op setting is actually a black mark as a patient safety indicator. We were courage to educate our physicians on the same to be sure it was a true respiratory failure versus insufficiency. Any thought on that, well, uh, on the PSI issue? Well, uh, yes, that's true, but so is acute pulmonary insufficiency following thoracic or non-thoracic surgery, also black marks. Mm. Both black marks, okay. so there you are. Okay. Um, let me see if I can pull up a, a couple others here. Um, just feel like I want to do these our, our listeners justice because this is an FAQ show. Um, you know, there's, there's there's been a couple comments just about um, you know, and this has been an ongoing issue, Richard, with official coding guidelines and you know, the recent update. And if the physician has written it, it should be coded. Um, any any thoughts sort of on that? I know that's really problematic with, with the clinical validation piece, and we did ask about that a little bit in our survey. But um, you know, but people right. were saying, you know, rather than ignore physician documentation, isn't it better to query or um, if, it's, if an MD documents it, a coder should code it, uh, etc. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Any thoughts there on, on sort of this piece? Oh yes. Uh, I think the intent of the uh, maintenance, Coordination Maintenance Committee was to clarify that coders are not the responsible party for this. But unfortunately, I don't think they foresaw that that's more, by doing it, they created a real problem and difficulty for hospitals and providers because these guidelines are not just for coders, they're specifically for all entities engaged in healthcare transactions hospitals, payers, all of those people. The coders are, are only involved because they are the agent responsible for doing this work for the hospital. But to tell the hospital that they can code and put on a claim a diagnosis that does not have clinical validity is in conflict with Medicare's policy and also with the False Claims Act. It exposes hospitals if it happens systematically, if they disregard that requirement to make sure it's clinically valid before you send a claim to Medicare, if that code results in higher payment, you're at risk. And it doesn't change Medicare's policy or false claims, so you're stuck with, okay, you can code it, but you can't put it on the claim. 
and that's the answer to the to the problem. That's the dilemma, and I'm not going to ask my hospital or anybody to expose themselves to doing things that the RAC auditors are saying you can't do, that Medicare says you cannot do, and that puts you at some risk if you do it with reckless disregard, you just ignore it and do it because it says so, then you could fall under the False Claims Act. So I don't want people to panic, but that's the fact. You know, we have another law that uh, governs these things. Yep. Well, thank you, Richard. You know, we're, we're, we're running short on time. I just wanted to spend a moment with our audience looking at um, some slides you sent me, you know, obviously as being the, the author of the CDI Pocket Guide eBook, are you seeing these on your screen, Richard? You maybe want to just talk a little bit about um, the, the sort of the digital versions of our popular Pocket Guide and sort of how it relates to today's topic as well. Yeah, uh, that's they, I love these things. I, I'm not good at, you know, eBooks and uh, apps, but. Uh, <laughs> I, I, and I haven't used them, but you know, seeing what it does, I'm just I'm amazed because I'm kind of electronic illiterate. Um, uh, Actus uh, provides the ebook and an app uh, together. Basically, the ebook the um, app is just accompanies the ebook, so you've got an ebook that you can put on a uh, you know, a mobile device other than a phone uh, and on your computer, and you can put the app on your phone or a mobile device. So you have access to all those uh, through all those media. So we're getting both uh, the uh, both of these things at, in one package, two for one. Uh, and this is just a few screenshots. Here is the. Uh, table of contents, you see all the different uh, subjects in the CDI Pocket Guide and then open the guidelines to show you. You just click on one of those and it takes you there. Have you got another slide? Yep. So here's your respiratory failure. This is, uh, you go to respiratory failure and you've got all the content that's in the CDI Pocket Guide right here. It's real easy to scroll through, look at anything you want. Uh, you can move from page to page with links that are in here, and you can actually click on links. There may be another page that shows one. Yep. I'm not sure. Yeah, see all those links? You click on that, and it'll take you to that if you have access to the Internet. So yep. I, I, this is so powerful, and we can pack, uh, I mean, we basically translate our CDI print version to this. And think about coders could have it on their des on their uh, desktops. Um, it, it's extremely a powerful tool and can be used by lots of people simply and easily. Yeah. What else we got here, well, Brian? Are, on the well, this is, yeah, this is the ebook. So just the the next couple slides are just the uh, will be the app portion. So again, purchase of the digital editions, you get the ebook, which is uh, you know you can bookmark it, highlight it search on it. Uh, you also get the app. So the next, um, let's see if I can actually pull them up here. Here we go. This is the, this is a screenshot of the uh, the app um, as well. You had sent this right. one and I believe a reference to uh, AKI. Which, um, you, you yeah, the first on one your, was uh, your iPhone. The first one was your um, table of contents 
and we showed the key references. You touch on a AKI there, acute kidney injury. You scroll through those, pick the one you want, and then if I were to touch AKI, I'd get the next one. And what this has is uh, this information about definition, diagnostic criteria, treatment, and coding challenges, and then additional information. So it's basically also reproduce the pocket guide. The nice thing about this is that this can be updated in real time, and therefore anything that happens during the year, we can update that, and we can put links to additional information that the pocket guide won't accommodate, like the sofa table. So that has other functionality that the ebook and the um, print version don't have. So I think, you know, uh, a lot of people could very well use all three. You could carry around your, um, if you like that and you use it and it's easy, but if you don't have it or you don't want to have to carry it, it could be on your phone. You can have it on your laptop. It's really easy to use if it's on your laptop, but uh, people have different preferences. Some like electronic better than others. Yep. Okay. Well, I appreciate that, Richard, that brief brief demo. At this point, we're going to just return now briefly to our poll results. So again, we did ask folks um, what's the biggest problem that they have with the proper diagnosis and reporting of acute respiratory failure. So here are our results. Uh, you should be seeing that on your screen. 42% um, say under documentation by clinicians is their biggest problem. 49% uh, say either overdiagnosis or, or or clinical validation of that diagnosis. 2% uh, coding errors, 5% auditor denials, and uh, only 2% don't have issues. So obviously it's a it remains a big issue, but it looks like you know slight majority um, are citing overdiagnosis or lack of uh, clinical validation. So. Any comments on that, uh, Dr. Pinson? Anything that surprises you about this poll result? Yeah, that uh, clinical validation over diagnosis is really kind of shocking, but I, I think I might understand it. I think under documentation, uh, interesting that that's still such a big problem. It doesn't mean we don't have C good CDI programs that we're not doing a great job, but physician education hasn't been done. It's very hard. It's very difficult. Uh, Actus also uh, offers uh, a you know a software educational system that is available, but uh, like any of those software programs uh, to educate physicians, it's um, you know certainly costs more than just a seminar, and um, it's uh, it's very convenient. But I don't want to go into it. Just want to let people be aware of it, so maybe they could let folks know because this is a big problem. We're doing a good job, but our doctors just don't know, don't understand the overdiagnosis, clinical validation. Maybe it's big because if you don't have under documentation, your physicians are good, then maybe that's your only problem left. Is maybe they're too enthusiastic and now they're using these diagnoses when maybe the criteria don't exist. So, uh, very good point. So uh, I think right. that's uh, that's very interesting for me to uh, see that. 
and I'm glad the others are low. All right. Any any thoughts on this, Charm, before we wrap up here? No, I liked what Dr. Pinson said. Um, I know there is a problem because I'm out there meeting these people, so the actual results do not surprise me, but I think the education is the key point, and we've just really got to keep it up. Mm -hmm. All right. You know, we're, we're almost at time. Uh, Brian? Yes, Richard, you have something to add. Yes. And I'm just doing some, if there's some more questions, is there any way for us to post uh, questions and answers after this? Yes, we, we did get several that were sent to me that I couldn't get to, so I, if you'd like, I can send them on to you. Yeah, and if there's a way to post it, we can let the participants right. know about it. And, uh, I, can I would post really it like right to do that other. for everybody, because there are a lot Great. of questions about these things. These could be one-hour talks each. I know, and I do appreciate that. We, I'll take you up on that offer, and I'm sure our listeners would appreciate it. So I just want to wrap up here. Unfortunately, we, we can't do the in the news, um, but we'll be covering this issue of the surviving sepsis campaign um, in a bit more next week on our Actus Quarterly conference call with our membership and our advisory board. There's an important article out there that I will point you to um, if you haven't seen it yet that Richard actually wrote. Uh, I, we don't have time to get into that. What, what I did want to wrap up with is just a quick Actus update to let folks know that our Actus Achievement Awards, um, as you probably might have seen, that initially was to close on February 3rd. We have extended the deadline for the Actus Achievement Awards to February 17th. Uh, really would encourage folks to nominate their peers. If you have a good manager, uh, you've got a great colleague you work with, maybe it's someone in the broader industry that you think is worthy of one of our four Actus Achievement Awards. Um, they're here on the website, so if you go to membership and you go to Actus Achievement Awards, um, you will find the extended deadline here. You will see below the four awards that we are um, have uh, available, and if you click on these links, it will take you right to the criteria that we're looking for, and here's the nomination form. Um, you know, it's a it's a high honor. We do recognize these folks at the conference coming up in May. Um, they, they they get an award, um, some words about them. Our CDI professional of the year also gets free admission to the conference. But we have four four very distinct awards that I would really recommend you consider nominating a peer for. Again, we we do have some additional time um, for you to do that through the February 17th. Uh, lastly, you know, if if you did like today's topic. Um, we do have an upcoming web, webinar on it. So this is our uh, networking page on Actus. This has a lot of information about um, upcoming shows, programs, conferences. All of our social media feeds are on this page. But you can see here we, we do have a show coming up in March, um, CDI's role in respiratory failure. You might want to check that out. All right. You know, with that, we're going to be go ahead and, and uh, wrap up today's program. Again, I want to thank uh, Richard for being on, on the show with us, as well as Charm. As always, Charm, uh, it's appreciated. Um, I'm going to just go ahead and pull up our last screen here, reminding you folks, if you could join us again in two weeks, we're going to be having a, a guest from a hospital uh, talking about how her facility has implemented the uh, severe sepsis bundle. Of course, that was the prior prior uh, severe sepsis bundle um, before the new the guidelines were just updated, but um, 
we'll get into that more later. But I hope you can join us in two weeks for that next show. As always, if you have any suggestions, uh, future guests, ideas about the format of the show, just send me an email. You can reach me at bmurphy at actus.org. That'll do it, everyone. We'll see you in two weeks, and uh, take care, everyone. Thank you.